I ask for your patience. We will, we will get to Galatians chapter 5. Um, but I want to start in the Old Testament story that is found in 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's one of those stories that you think maybe shouldn't be in the Bible. It's a story of love, of violence, and of hatred. It's a story involving the crown prince of Israel, Amnon, the son of David, and his half-sister, Tamar. We read in chapter 13 that in the course of time, Amnon, the son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. He was what you might call lovesick, and he became frustrated to the point of illness. A friend of his named Jonadab asked him what was wrong. And Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Part of the problem, at least in his mind, was that she was a virgin. Jonadab gives him advice and tells him what to do. Go to bed, pretend to be sick. Then, of course, the king will come and check on the crown prince and, and ask what's wrong. And when your father comes, tell him, listen, what I need, what I want is for my sister Tamar to come and cook some food in front of me so I will have something to eat. Amnon does as advised and things go as planned. David sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. And she did. She made bread and baked it in his presence, but he refused to eat it. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. And when everyone had left the room, Amnon told Tamar to bring the food into his bedroom. And when she did so, he grabbed her. Come to bed with me, my sister. She begs him not to do this and gives him four reasons. At least three of them are solid reasons why he should not do this. The first is that such a thing would be wrong. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. The second reason is it would ruin her. Where could I get rid of my disgrace? The third reason is it would reveal him to be the fool that he was. And what about you, she asked. You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. The fourth reason is sort of iffy. She says, speak to our father, the king, and he will give you, he will not keep me from being married to you. Um, This is sort of iffy because the law in Leviticus forbids marriage between uh, half siblings. Um, Leviticus 19, do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. Everyone who does any of these detestable acts, such persons must be cut off from their people. Amnon refuses to listen to her, and since he was stronger than her, he took her by force and he violated her. Then we read the following. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. She begs him not to send send her away. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refuses to listen. He didn't listen the first time. He's not going to listen now. And he calls his personal servant and says, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. And the servant did as he was told. We read, and Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. In this tragic story, we find an individual, Amnon, who thought he knew what would make him happy. And when he got it, when he took it, instead it turned to great unhappiness. 
or in the language of the story, love turned into hate. And following up our study in the book of Galatians, looking at themes, themes I hope that we will see are interwoven, and, and not just individual particulars, but things that make a whole together. Our journey has taken us from truth to knowing to goodness to happiness. And part of what has directed or guided me in this is the fact that these things are often disconnected, that we don't, in our world, we don't find a connection, for example, between knowing and the truth. So we say, well, you believe the truth, you don't know the truth, but you believe it. But it is really that disconnect between goodness and these other things that I find fascinating, um, that goodness and truth seem to be disconnected. And for our purposes, where we are now, goodness and happiness seem disconnected. As we've seen already, we live in a time when truth, if if you in fact believe that it exists, is seen as impersonal and objective, which is contrary to what we find in Scripture, in which we are told that Jesus is the truth. We've also seen that story is no longer part of the modern dialogue, if you wish, Um, and so the grand narrative of Scripture, beginning with creation and ending with redemption or renewal, with Christ as the center of all things, is thrown out the window. And as a result, the church, I think, having imbibed such a way of thinking, focuses more on propositions and principles rather than stories. And our understanding of the truth, I think, can be radically different. Certainly not connected to goodness. But where we are now is the disconnect between goodness and happiness. We began to look at happiness last Sunday, and we did so in light of creation, fall, and redemption. That is, in creation, we find the deep meaning of happiness as God intended it for us. In the fall, we see what was lost and what took its place. God had happiness for us, but since we rebelled, we have now put something in its place. And then in redemption, we have the restoring of a deep meaning of happiness. And yet, with the already not yet thinking in mind that we have it now, but we will have it fully uh, at the end of time. So I mentioned last Sunday, we must start with creation in order to know what the Creator intended, where things are out of joint, and how it is that redemption is going to change things. In so many areas, people do not begin with creation. They begin with the fall. And therefore, when it comes to fixing things, they don't have a blueprint. They sort of make it up as they go along. And this is how they think things should be. If you don't know this, Audrey is a great whiz at puzzles. She's really good at putting puzzles together. And one time, Guy and I were visiting the Shriners, and Audrey was in the living room putting a puzzle together, and so I thought I would help her. Um, I was of little help. Um, But in my defense, I didn't know what the picture of the puzzle was. Audrey had forgotten where she put the box, and so we didn't know what, I didn't know what the picture was. She remembered what it was, and so she is busily putting pieces together. I don't think I got two pieces to match the whole time that I was there, in part because I didn't know what the picture was. I think we can agree that happiness is a universal quest. The quest for the happy life is what people live for, and as Americans, this is particularly true of us. But if we don't know what the picture is, what God intended in creation, 
then how we will define happiness and how we will picture it may in fact be radically different. And I would say it, it has to be radically different because we are not trusting in God. In fact, we are rebelling against God. For Christians, we must go back to the beginning. We have to go back to, to paradise, to Eden, a garden of delight. And here God sets up a place. Here is the setting for a place of true happiness. As I mentioned last week, there are at least six components that we find that God provides. The first is a spiritual component in which man was in intimate communion with God. This is man's identity made in the image of the creator. There is the vocational component in which Adam is given a job. There's something he's supposed to do. This is his calling. There is a social component. We are made for companionship. There is the nutritional component. God didn't simply give them out meal packs you know, or vitamins. In fact, God provided a beautiful garden with all different kinds of fruits and foods for them to, to eat. And there was water to drink. There is the sabbatical component. There is a time in which we are supposed to rest from what we are doing. And we see this, that God rested on the seventh day. And the last is habitational. That is, God gave them a place to live, a beautiful place to live that they could take pleasure in their surroundings. When we take these six components, these six ingredients together, we see that God has created a place for people to be happy. But Adam and Eve sinned, and therefore they are kicked out, they are exiled from Eden. And that's, that's a pretty horrible thing. But one of the most devastating effects of being exiled from Eden is that now people act and think as though they can find happiness apart from God. There doesn't seem to be the thought that, oh, maybe it's back there where God created something for us, but now humanity thinks, in fact, that we can do it apart from God. To be more specific, happiness is believed to reside in love for the things of this world. And the result of the fall is disordered love, an unhinged love, and also, as a result of that, disordered lives. Augustine argued that happiness is deeply connected to the things that we love. That's, that's what we think will make us happy, the things that we love. Amnon with Tamar, this is what will make him happy. But disordered love, as we see in Amnon, and disordered lives not only his own, but that of his half-sister, both have their roots in ignorance. Ignorance about why we are here and ignorance about the foundations, the ingredients of the happy life. Augustine wrote that there are at least four types of people in search of a happy life. He argued that the first three cannot possibly be happy. The fourth can if, in fact, he or she answers questions in the right way. Three kinds of unhappy people searching for happiness. The person who does not have what he or she wants, whatever that may be. The second is the person who has what he or she wants, but what he or she has is not good for that person. And then thirdly, the person who does not love what, in fact, she or he has. And it is, in fact, the right thing. They have what they're supposed to have. The first person can't be happy because he or she does not possess the thing or things he or she wants most in life. Such a person does not have what he or she treasures or loves. 
and therefore cannot be happy. I don't have what I want, what I love, what I treasure most in life. The second person cannot be happy because what they have, in fact, isn't good for them. What they love, in fact, is death in disguise. You can't be happy if what you love ultimately is destructive. This I got from David Noggle's book, uh, not being that familiar with country western music. Alan Jackson has a song entitled Everything I Love. He says, everything I love is killing me. Cigarettes, Jack Daniels, and caffeine. And that's the way you're turning out to be. Everything I love, going to have to give it up because everything I love is killing me. The third person lives an ironic life. They have what it takes to be happy, but they really don't like what they have. They regard what is, in fact, treasure and precious as garbage or trash. The true source of satisfaction is sort of pushed aside, and their attention is focused on unimportant things, on lesser things. The first person is tortured because they don't have what they want. The second person is cheated because what they have isn't good for them. And the third person is diseased. One might say mentally unbalanced because, in fact, what they have is what they need, what is good for them, but they don't care for it. Or to put it in terms of love, the first lacks what he loves. The second, what he or she shouldn't love. And the third doesn't love what, in fact, he or she should So the question comes, can anyone be happy? Augustine says, yes, there's a fourth kind of person. The fourth person, the one who could be happy, knows what man's chief good is, and he possesses what is man's chief good. The question then is, what is that? What is man's chief good? By the way, just parenthetically, hopefully you've already made a connection here between goodness and happiness. Man's chief good is what is important for his happiness. The fact that we have to discuss man's chief good points to the problem of ignorance, that we don't intuitively, we don't know what in fact is good for us. In fact, many people don't believe that there is such a thing. A chief good? No, I'll decide what is good for me and what's good for me may not be good for you. How can we know? There is the matter of our ignorance. Why don't we know what is good for us? In our discussion here, we are in the realm of the fall. We've left creation and now we are in the realm of the fall. And one of the consequences of the fall is the blindness of our hearts and our minds. We don't know who God is on our own. We are confused about the origin and the nature of the world on our own. We don't know who we are. We don't know why we are here. We don't know what's gone wrong with the world or what remedy there might be. The Bible addresses this ignorance. First of all, it points out that there is this ignorance. But then we are also told the answers to these questions. In Jeremiah 10.14 we read, Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. And why is this? Several chapters later, Because you have forgotten me and trusted in false gods. In the New Testament we read more about our cognitive inconsistencies, as one person has put it. In John chapter 1, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 
And in that passage in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes that human wisdom is foolishness because it omits the knowledge of God. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul speaks so clearly, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So the Bible is very clear that we are ignorant about the things that are true apart from God. But it isn't just a biblical matter. Philosophers have been telling us this for centuries, the difficulty we have in knowing or discovering the truth. Plato said that we are deceived about the nature of reality and it is as though we were born in a darkened cave. Immanuel Kant believed that our minds are limited to knowing how things appear, but not really how they are. Richard Rorty, a postmodernist, has argued that truths, in quotation marks, don't really mirror reality. They're simply practical tools for us to survive in this world and to complete our tasks. The question is, if we are in fact incarcerated in a knowledge prison, well, maybe an ignorance prison that knowledge is outside. Um, if this is the case, now we, I think we can begin to understand why there is so much false talk about happiness. I mean, it's one of the consequences of the fall. When you leave God's happiness, you think you can create it on your own. And if you're ignorant, well, then you're just going to create all sorts of chaos about the matter of happiness. Rather than heading for truth as human beings, we tend to head for destruction. We may blame others for this, but I like what Augustine wrote about this. What am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? So there are theological, philosophical reasons for our ignorance. But there are also cultural reasons, and I want to spend some time on this. Consider the following. We are surrounded in this culture by numerous worldviews. You might say, so what? Ideas about happiness, what it is and where to get it, come from a person's culture and their worldview. Assumptions about the nature of life, the important issues of life. As one author concludes, 
what we believe provides the basic structure of what we expect. So if this is what we think, if this is what we believe, then we have certain expectations when it comes to the matter of happiness. Consider the worldviews, and this is just a partial list, that are found in our society. Theism, deism, pantheism, polytheism, naturalism, atheism, materialism, existentialism, spiritualism, paganism. And you might say any combination or two or more of these, we certainly see an abundance around us. And each one of these has its own view of happiness. Theism, which would describe us, looks to a loving God as creator and redeemer. Deism says, be good and revere the transcendent God. Pantheism, or as Schaefer used to call it, pan-everythingism, live in harmony with the divine cosmos. Polytheism, and here I would say um, we see animism as well, placating the gods and goddesses. Naturalism is exalting oneself and enjoying the world. Materialism, pleasures and consumption bring happiness. Existentialism, authenticity by choices. Spiritualism, expand your consciousness and then you will be happy. And then paganism, devote yourself to the gods of self, sex, the occult, the environment, technology, and the list goes on and on. With all these surrounding us, I think we can understand why one would be easily confused. But the second thing that we find is that with these worldviews in the, in the background, because they are the assumptions that we hold and they're usually sort of in the back of our minds, our culture itself feeds us a steady diet of messages and images about the good life, what it means to be happy. Our culture is a smorgasbord of choices, offering us a variety of items to fill our hunger and thirst for happiness. After all, it is a universal quest. And I love what we read in Proverbs 27.7. He who is full loathes honey, but to the hungry even what is bitter tastes sweet. And since it is a universal quest, people are hungry to be happy, they will even eat trash and think it tastes good because of their hunger. One contemporary philosopher, our contemporary, argues that we live in a culture in which people are forced to talk about things without knowing what they're really talking about. A part of this is the fact that people say truth doesn't exist. And so they talk as though it does, but they really don't know what they're talking about. Others have noted, and this is a quote, we live in a Pinocchio nation and have built our lives on lies. How odd it is we rarely notice. Fish don't realize they are wet. And we apparently don't realize what we are swimming in either. Pop culture, a popular culture, is particularly responsible for this unchecked garbage, I would say, that surrounds us. Particularly in the way that it communicates the happy life. Although there are good influences, our parents, hopefully the pastor, church, school, friends, a virtually omnipresent popular culture, I think, outdoes them all. I think in many ways cancels them all. Television, music, movies, magazines, the internet, and let's not forget advertising, which not only sells products, but tells us we will be happy if we have these products. And then we have celebrities. Daniel Borson defines a celebrity as someone who is known for being well-known. 
And I think we don't even realize that in many ways they have usurped the position of parents, of pastors, priests, even of teachers. That like it or not, we listen to them, we look to them. David Noggle writes, What they think, say, do, and wear frequently affect our thoughts, words, deeds, and fashions as well. As role models for old and young alike, they establish mindsets, shape dreams, motivate pursuits, and prompt behaviors. We also adopt their very projection of the happy life. The answer is not to reject all popular culture. After all, Jesus did not run from the culture of his time. Instead, he came and lived among us. But we need to be discerning about this. We should recognize the falsehood, the ugliness, the evil that comes from the waters, the polluted waters that we swim in. I tell my students this uh, when we talk about popular culture. Um, Generally speaking, I'm not unhappy with the fact that I'm bald. Because unless I'm looking in the mirror, I oftentimes forget. But every once in a while at night, I'll happen on an infomercial in which they tell me that I would be so much happier if I had a head of hair. And I'm thinking, am I unhappy? Is there something wrong with me that I don't realize I'm unhappy? I, this is what the culture does to us. And the answer is not to run away, but the answer is to be discerning. The third thing is if you take these two things together, the multiplicity of worldviews and then our culture around us, what we find is that we get confused about what is real and what is not real. What is apparent and what is virtual, if you wish. Impersonators abound and they surround us and we too easily confuse what we desire with what is desirable. We seek to satisfy the superficial while starving the essential aspects of our humanity. David wrote in Psalm 4, How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? In a fallen world, we tend to think we can find happiness in this world apart from the Creator. And we think we can find that happiness through the things that we love. When it occurs to us that we are limited, when we feel needy or incomplete, we may attach ourselves to various things we pray will in fact supply the happiness we desire, that we hope will satisfy that mysterious longing that has been summoning us from afar. Blaise Pascal wrote, He, that is God, only is our true good, And since we have forsaken him, it is a strange thing that there is nothing in nature which has not been serviceable in taking his place. That is, everything in creation, at one point or another, has sought to take the place of God in our lives. And since man has lost the true good, everything can appear equally good to him, though so opposed to God, to reason, and to the whole course of nature. I do want to be clear about this. There are, in fact, many things that we can love and that we should love that fit our nature and that fit our needs. We need and love people to offset loneliness and to provide companionship. Dan read to us several weeks ago from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. 
If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls with no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though they may be overpowered, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We need and we should love people. We need and we love place to offset homelessness, to afford a sense of belonging and security. We need and love things like food to satisfy our hunger, like water to quench our thirst, like houses that provide shelter, like clothing that supply, uh, clothing that supplies covering and protection. We need and love rest, recreation, and play to overcome tiredness and even boredom, to supply experiences of adventure and excitement. We also naturally love, nourish, and cherish ourselves. That's why we're told to love our neighbors ourselves. Our love for animals also has a place here. All of these things we need and love are good because God has given them. In his goodness, he has given them to us. They are legitimate objects of our love. They are valid sources of satisfaction if we understand them correctly and love them in the right way. We should also understand that we are not to love everything in the same way. There is a scale of value. We must give love and praise to things according to where they are. And so the problem is not that we need things or that we love things or the things that we need and love. The problem is when we fail to grasp the nature of these things, the manner in which we are supposed to love them, and the expectations we have with regard to our relationship with these things. Far too often, as fallen human beings, we fail to grasp that each thing is unique, and that has a special place, and it has a purpose in our lives. If we're not careful, if we give it more than what it should have, then, in fact, our love is disordered. It is out of order. Please hear what I'm about to say. When we love something or someone in the place of God, then we have expectations. We make demands of that person or thing that only God can fulfill. If we think that loving this person, like Amnon with Tamar, would in fact give him fulfillment, he would be complete as a person, only God can do that, then you will be bitterly disappointed as Amnon was, and the love turned to hatred. That which he thought would bring him happiness, in fact, did not. Only God can fill that need. And through his goodness, he has provided all of these things for us. But we must resist the temptation to latch onto them and suddenly exalt them to the position of God. And we think this is what will make me happy. Only God has, as Oswald Chambers put it, the ability to satisfy the last aching abyss of the human heart. As a result, as we see with Amnon and Tamar, we have disordered relationships in which expectations are unrealistic, primarily because the other person has been put in the place of God. At this point, I imagine that you may be 
thinking one of two things, or maybe both. First of all, you might say, Damon, it seems that you're talking more about unbelievers and Christians than you are about us. To which I would give you two answers. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, we live in this culture as fish live in water. We drink the polluted water of this culture. We are not unaffected. We cannot be unaffected by what surrounds us. And I would argue that we are profoundly affected by our culture far more than we actually realize. On the other hand, we need to recognize that there are people in our culture who embrace creation and reject the creator. That is what most unbelievers do. On the other hand, many in the church embrace the creator while rejecting the creation. They do not understand, they do not accept, they don't recognize the goodness and the beauty of the creation. And so both the unbeliever and the believer, in many ways, are sort of messed up because they're, they haven't figured out how to do both, how to love God and how to love his creation. The world tends toward hedonism, that is, worshipping bodily life and its pleasures. Many in the church go in the opposite direction and, and tend toward Gnosticism, that ancient heresy that says creation is nothing, the body is nothing, pleasure is nothing. It's all about the soul or the spirit. The world's, this worldliness is matched by the church's other worldliness. I found a review on Amazon of a current book on happiness to be interesting. The book, by the way, that's a whole perhaps series in itself, is Joel Osteen's book, Every Day of Friday, How to Be Happier Seven Days a Week. Um, I do not recommend the book. But the reviewer made this comment. It is sad to me that so many Christians, and in princess, including Mr. Osteen, think that true joy and happiness is found on this earth, this side of eternity. In other words, what fools to think you can be happy in this life. Such a view, I say, cancels out the goodness of God, the love of God, and the beauty of God's creation. Unfortunately, this is what so many Christians think. The second thing you might be wondering is, when are we going to get to our text? I've had my Bible open to Galatians chapter 5, and we haven't gotten there yet. Well, we will now. I would argue that what, what Paul does here in Galatians 5 is talk about two roads to happiness. The first is seen in the works of the flesh. Flesh, that is, that which is natural to us as human beings, but apart from the Spirit of God. We are dependent by nature. We are in need of instruction. We are in need of revelation to tell us this is the picture. This is what God intends for happiness. Without that, we're sort of on our own and we're lost. And the result is, well, you'll see it here in verse number, verses 19 through 21, in terms of worldview. This is paganism, which is what the Galatians were. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what people do thinking that this is what will make them happy. And Paul says that's not going to make you happy. And if you are going to be a part of the kingdom of God, 
creation, fall, redemption, here in redemption, you cannot take a fallen view of happiness and think that this will bring you joy. In contrast to this doomed quest for happiness that we see in these three verses, we have that which comes from the Creator, the fruit of the Spirit, or if you wish, the chief good for humanity. Verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And if you go back to verse 16, Paul says at the beginning of this passage, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you cannot do what you want. They are two roads to happiness, to the good life, to what God intends for you. You can't take both roads. You're going to have to pick. And Paul says, do not choose the works of the flesh. This is ignorance. This is being born in a darkened cave and thinking, I know what will bring happiness. As Tamar said to Amnon, you will be like one of the wicked fools of Israel. You think this is what will make you happy. So I mentioned earlier, the question is then, what is the chief good? I said last Sunday, and I repeat it today, we must begin at the beginning. To fail to do so means that we will say that this world is nothing. We will devalue it. Its place, its goodness, its beauty. I don't know if you've ever think about this, but what must the world... What must it have been like before sin came in? Because it's so beautiful now. It is the goodness of God that is revealed in his creation. Unfortunately, so many Christians have detached the Old Testament from the New Testament. The Old Testament is for Sunday school, you know, keep the kids busy coloring and listening to these fascinating stories. People forget that the Christian faith not only deals with redemption... It deals with creation. And when it comes to the person of Jesus, that he is not only our redeemer, but he is our creator. Paul wrote to the Colossians, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If we do not see him as creator and redeemer, and only as redeemer, slowly but surely it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, so that he's here basically to get us out of here and take us to heaven. Instead of the fact that he's here to redeem the creation, to redeem that which was lost, that which was created and lost in sin, Jesus has come back to redeem it. And when Jesus says, I am the truth, we're like, oh yeah, that's my punch my ticket, get me to heaven, instead of, what does God want for me in this life? As I said last week, I'm convinced God wants us to be happy in this life. The question is, what, how do we define happiness? As a result of sin, but also as things have progressed over the last 20 centuries, we find a series of disconnects that have occurred. And what I've been trying to do in this series is put things back together. But the pattern of disconnecting, sacred from secular, eternal from the temporal, soul from the body, grace from nature, faith from reason. 
and as we've seen in this series, truth from goodness, knowing from truth, and goodness from happiness. I'd like us to take the next week to think about what I've talked about today, to look at how we have imbibed what the world tells us about happiness. The Lord willing, next week we'll come back and see what God has to say about the matter. Let's pray together. Father, first we thank you for your goodness and the goodness and the beauty of your creation. We thank you that you've created us with the capacity to love and to love in different ways. And also, you've created us to be needy people. We are dependent. So we need food. We need water. We need a place to live. We need each other. And we are to love each other. It's the second great commandment, to love our neighbors ourselves. This is what we need to do. But because of our own rebellion, our ignorance, so often like the culture around us, we think we know what will make us happy. Like Amnon, we have our Tamar. If only we get that, we will be happy. And we have put that thing in your place. Forgive us. And may your spirit open our eyes. Give us understanding. To see that we are to be happy. There is happiness that you intend for us. But it finds its root, its source in you. Yes, the things of this world can bring us a degree of satisfaction. But they cannot replace you. By your spirit, may we think and meditate on these things in the coming week. And particularly as we walk through this world, bombarded by images, by words, by ideas. May we begin to sort of straighten things out in our thinking. To see that you alone are our chief good. You know what is best for us. You know far better than we do. If left to our own devices, we will do the works of the flesh. But we are to trust in you and find the fruit of the Spirit. I thank you for this time that we could gather to worship. Thank you for your goodness, the presence of your Spirit in your Son. We do pray for Frankie there in Berlin that you would watch over him, keep him safe, but also help him as he auditions. Give him strength to use the skill that you have given him. A wonderful gift. And then we ask you to bring him back safely to us. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. And be with us throughout this week. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.